Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to learn better ways to be like the great physician. We pray that uh, you will bless us as we um, hear the instruction that you've given from years of experience and careful study and observation from Dr. Adams. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you very much. Uh, how many of the audience are dentists? Do we have dentists? How many are physicians? Mostly uh, have physicians here. The dentists would probably be in a dental track. Yeah. All right. Well, it's, uh, 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 I'm honored that you would be here and want to hear this talk. Uh, and uh, this summarizes some of what I've said in previous talks and places, but I've adapted it to the theme that we have here. And, uh, but my, my overall theme is when does health become evangelism? And uh, in your uh, booklet, you saw the objectives of this course. And uh, the theme of this weekend is are you willing? And uh, there are three uh, levels of willingness that were uh, ad to address. One is to be absolutely committed to Christ. Number two, to share your faith journey with your patients and to spend time to motivate your patients on their uh, health faith journey. And then I'm gonna add a fourth one, uh, uh, a willingness, and uh, I will come to that. But I wanna discuss the first threes for a few minutes. Uh, our absolute commitment to Christ is extremely important. And that's something that takes time and you need to do it every day. And early morning is best, and if it's uninterrupted, uninterrupted time, it's even better. Uh, so I, I do my devotions just first thing in the morning. And then after that, I do my exercise, and then after that, I have a little breakfast. And uh, then it also takes study. Uh, studying scripture and studying spirit of prophecy, and I I, I can probably 90% of my study time is confined uh, to these sources. Uh, and then it also requires prayer. Uh, prayer at the beginning of the day, the end of the day, and frequently uh, throughout the day. The second aim is to share your faith journey with your patients. And uh, I, there are some subtle ways of witnessing uh, that we don't often think about. Uh, kindness and gentleness. Is, uh, is the way Christ treated uh, the people he had contact with. And uh, in our practices, I always appreciate uh, punctuality. Uh, that's difficult for uh, us to do, but in my private practice of internal medicine, it got to the point where if I went into an exam room five minutes late, a patient would complain. They'd say, doctor, you're five minutes late coming in here. And uh, uh, it, this costs you money because if a patient doesn't show up, uh, then you have some downtime, but you can fill that with uh, various kinds of education. Uh, a fair fee schedule. Uh, I have been to physicians uh, and uh, I, I think I've been charged an exorbitant price uh, for the exam that was done. And I think that if I looked at the medical record, it would reflect a much more detailed exam in history than actually occurred. And I, I think that is uh, unfair and is an incorrect witness. 
I think time uh, is a good way. Jesus took time with people. Uh, and uh, physicians nowadays, especially if you work in a corporation, your time is not your own. You're rushed. And that's what I treasured about my private practice. I, uh, an average visit was 15 minutes. A new visit was an hour. And uh, uh, more recently, I've been treating HIV and AIDS patients. And uh, in that group of clientele, in the clinic I worked in, they gave me 45 minutes for a return patient and an hour and a half for a new patient. Now, HIV and AIDS patients are often quite complicated and have multiple problems. And so the extra time is often useful. But very often, you have a ch chance to visit with people. But time will cost you money as well. You need to be scientifically accurate. Uh, I, I think that God, uh, God is the God of science. And to the extent that we understand science, we're being godly in what we do. I, I have had colleagues uh, that uh, promoted various kinds of products or treatments, which in fact had no basis in science, and I think diminished the credibility of that particular practice. And so as, pra as Christian practitioners, as Seventh-day Adventist Christian practitioners, I think we need to be scientifically accurate. That is a spiritual witness. I think clarity is important. And one of the things that I did was to draw uh, diagrams rather crude on my exam uh, paper. I'd say, get down off the table, let me show you here, and I'd draw stuff out. And more than half the time when I was done, they'd say, could, could, could we tear this off? Could I take this home with me? Because I'd like to explain this to my family as clearly as you explained it to me. So I think uh, uh, clarity is a good spiritual witness as well. And then there are opportunities for overt spiritual messages speaking of Jesus, praying with patients, and I've highlighted two things. One is literature in the exam room. I think literature in the waiting room uh, is of relatively limited value. Uh, I like to have uh, literature racks in the exam room, and I like to have an array of sensitive topics. So if you have one on divorce, one on spousal abuse, uh, one on uh, sexual problems, one on STDs, uh, one on depression. Uh, and when you come in to the room, you can see which brochure they're looking at. And the brochure that they're looking at will give you a clue as to the nature of a problem that they might have and they might be willing to discuss. So I always had literature racks in the exam room and have always done that. Uh, the second thing is, that I think is important is sharing what you are reading. I had a box of uh, Desire of Ages or a box of Great Controversy uh, right by my desk. And as part of my work in the morning, I'd take it out and I'd be reading a chapter and I'd underline. And if a patient seems susceptible, I'd say, I have a book that I'd like to lend you. And you bring it out and show them where you've been underlining. Write your name in the book as well. Say, I'd like you to, to, to read this particular chapter because I think it has a message in it that's good for you. And they will read it because it's your book and they borrowed it. And at their next visit, they'll bring it back, at which time you can give it to them because you have a box of them <laughs> there that you are reading perpetually. And I found that to be a very uh, useful witness mechanism. We always had prayer with our staff as well. And not only prayer, but did, had a little worship service with our staff. And uh, you can't just presume on their Christian goodness. It's important for you to cultivate that. 
Uh, I've seen waiting rooms uh, that have TV, uh, TVs on with either Hope or a 3ABN. And I, I, although I have not done this, I have uh, had colleagues that actually conducted Bible studies in their, uh, in their uh, clinic. The literature racks in the exam room look something like that. Now, the third item is to spend time to motivate your patients in their faith journey. I think this is difficult. It's, it's really difficult to motivate patients, and I wish that I had a good answer on how to do that. I think personal example is important, and um, uh, talk of God's power to accomplish. I think that is really the key. Uh, our patients need behavior change. And, they, and we can tell them what they need to do, but they really don't have the ability or the power to do that. And so that's a good chance to say, well, God will help you with that problem. And, uh, and if you pray about it, you'll find that there's help. That gives you a chance to pray with them as well. So I, I think you need to uh, show that science and faith are compatible and that they're interdependent and that, in fact, the behavior change that you want in science is enhanced by the devotion uh, to God that a person has. And you can tell people, just try it, and let's see how it works. I had a lady who stopped smoking with God's help, who was a secular person. And uh, a couple of months after quitting smoking, she remarked to me, she said, this is a wonderful model, how God helps help me quit smoking. I think this is uh, something I could apply to some other problem areas in my life. Well, I, I observed her, I, I think there's nothing in the Christian life. The Christian life is simply learning to trust God with more and more areas until you learn to trust him with everything. And at that point in time, uh, you know, you've reached a level of Christian maturity. But uh, she learned that uh, in a stop smoking situation. And I, I think that uh, you should uh, think through, and this is not the place to do it today because our time is short, think through what are the steps of behavior change. Uh, uh, there are a number of books that will give you the steps, but those are not necessarily divine steps. I think you need to, uh, to figure out how, how exactly does God help people. And if you pray for help, do you feel it? No, not necessarily. Well, if you don't feel it, how do you know you got the help? Well, you, you've got the help at the point of failure. Uh, where you used to always fail before, God's not going to let you fail. You, you can have success there. Now, can you choose to fail? Yes. If you choose to fail, does God abandon you? No. Uh, you need to trust God again and see how it works. So there are steps in divine behavior change, and I would love to go into all of the steps, but you need to work that out and share that with you. CBT, uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, is all the rage now, but uh, the truth is it doesn't hold a candle to divine behavioral therapy. And uh, God can help you where uh, science leaves off. Acknowledge progress. So when you see that a person's making progress, that needs to uh, be acknowledged. And uh, then don't condemn failure, but encourage people to try again. So I wanted to add one more thing to these three willing things, and I want to spend the rest of my time talking about that. And uh, the fourth thing is beyond the scope of your practice, 
Are you willing to go beyond the scope of your practice and lead your church in health evangelism activities for your community? And uh, I, I think that this is important, and I've got 10 steps or 10 aspects of it that I want to share with you. Uh, why beyond your practice? Because your office is not the Christian's home. Uh, the truth is people are not baptized into your office. They're baptized into the church. And so the truth is you need to have a clear-cut path on how to get a patient from your office uh, in, into the church. And also the church is a more important community institution than your office is. Uh, uh, just to, to dwell on this, uh, when Christ blinded Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul asked, Lord, what would you have me to do? The Lord Jesus Christ did not tell him because the roadside was not the place to get the information. He said, go into the city and it will be shown you. And he directed Saul to become Paul to the church. He directed him to the church. Then he contacted the church in the form of Ananias and said, you've got to go help Paul here. So Christ values the role of his church in society, and we need to value that as well. Yes, there's a place for us to witness in our practice, but as a scientist, you need to be a leader in your church. And uh, the membership of the church represents a much larger staff of workers than your office has. And so you, you need to uh, mobilize, and it's your responsibility to mobilize church members to be as effective a witness as your office staff is. And, and that does take time. And the church needs competent health leadership that only you can provide. And uh, I, I, I'll touch on that more later. Don't get me started because I could rant and rave. Uh, every church I've been to has been filled with uh, some health experts. And I, I recently ran across a wonderful quote that I'm going to share with you. So church membership represents a larger staff than you have. Yes, the church is going to want you to have some traditional roles, deacon, elder, Sabbath school teacher, work with the pathfinders, men's ministry, prayer meeting, uh, maybe preaching uh, or doing some evangelistic series. Uh, and they expect you to pay tithe and be very liberal in your offerings. And uh, at this point, I lose all merit for it. But for the past several years, and I've been pretty much retired, my wife and I have been, with God's help, been able to contribute about 34% of our income uh, to the church and its various ministries. And uh, we praise God that we can do that. And it's good to see the church grow. So I would challenge you to support the church's ministries very, very liberally. So these are the 10 important church roles for health professionals. Number one, it's your responsibility to select health evangelism activities for the church. If you don't select the activities, uh, somebody else is going to do it. You need to find quality programs that will be adaptable to your congregation, put the church to work, promote, organize, and conduct the programs for the public regularly at the church. Uh, it's difficult to select the right program and I have found that many of the programs that I have wanted to use were not designed for church ministry, and I have always taken the liberty to modify them. And I modify them in, in certain specific ways, and this would be a, a, a responsibility. So the second 
uh, point is modify existing health programs to maximize their evangelistic potential. And I, uh, perhaps one way to conceptualize this is to ask yourself, we have health and we have evangelism, which is more important? You can say, well, they're both more important. But the truth is evangelism is always more important because everybody that gets healthy, everybody Jesus healed eventually died. And everybody you help is going to die. But everybody who has a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is going to live forever. And they're going to have eternal health and bliss. And so the truth is, as a health professional, you need to recognize that evangelism is always more important than just the health side of it. And it's your responsibility to infuse health programs with evangelism. And uh, how do you do that? And uh, so uh, modify existing health programs. So what you do, there are several ways to do it. One way is to create an interface with church members. Because uh, one way to do it is to create small groups. A lot of programs, uh, the, the physician or health professional gives the talk from the front. Everybody says yay and claps. Well, that's a relationship of 1 to 50. And that doesn't work well. In order to be evangelistic, you have to have 1 on 1 or 1 to 2 or 1 to 3. And so health programs need to be modified in such a way that church members are introduced to the public that comes. So you do that in small groups and put two church members in charge of each uh, small group. Another way you do it is to incorporate Bible studies in all of the programs. And you'll find that some programs have a dabbling of spiritual material. Uh, some are quite spiritual, some are not at all. Uh, what I do in my weight management program that I run is I, I give everybody a scripture assignment for each day of the week. And, uh, and they take it with them, and then I want them to write two or three sentences as to how that applies to their weight issue. And, uh, and it's amazing. People will come back and say, I never knew the Bible said this. This is the most wonderful promise I've ever run across. I've written it out. I've typed it out. I have it on my refrigerator. I have it on my stove. I have it in my car. I, re I read this 50 times a day. Well, uh, how did she get that? It was because Bible was assigned in the health program. So what you need to do to make a health program evangelistic is to put some of the Bible into it. And you, there are creative ways of doing that. Incorporate prayer in all programs. Now this is very uh, easy to do in the weight management program because people are sort of used to offering prayer before meals, or at least that's a concept that they understand. And I usually tell them this is not a time to thank God for the food because you've been getting way too much. So, you know, what you need to do is to say, God, I'm about to kill myself. And this is the valley of the shadow of death for me. And I need deliverance. Help me to put this fork down when I've had enough. And uh, so there are ways of putting prayer into it. And 
I, I use scorecards with daily, uh, I, so I keep track of whether or not they read their Bible. I keep track of whether or not they said their prayers. I keep track of whether or not they contacted the health members, uh, the church members that they were supposed to do. Because contact with church members makes it evangelistic. And so I think you need to modify programs or you need to make sure that any program you conduct in your church should be modified to have these components in them. That will make a health program evangelistic. So uh, modify, improve, change. Uh, the third point is to educate and involve the pastor in health. Many pastors don't practice healthful living. I, I, I worked at the, in the health department of the General Conference for three years and went to annual council uh, in Nairobi, Kenya and had breakfast in the hotel with the brethren. And I, I just was so surprised at how much coffee was consumed, how much tea was consumed, how much uh, flesh food was consumed. And these are pastors. And the pastors don't live the health message. And uh, I think that uh, some pastors don't want to do health evangelism. I've been in churches where that's happened. And when that has occurred, uh, I, have, uh, I have moved, moved my membership to another church. No use staying in a church. Don't double-cross the pastor. Uh, there was a church in Towson, Maryland, where I worked. And uh, uh, the pastor spent his days visiting patients in the hospital, and I spent my time in the church doing health evangelism programs. And uh, the, the pastor actually became kind of antagonistic. And uh, so I was wondering what I should do. And then I read uh, the chapter, uh, He Must Increase, I Must Decrease in Desire of Ages. And uh, in there, Ms. White very plainly sees, whenever controversy threatens, there is a loss of souls. And, uh, and the disciples went to John, and he said, well, he must increase, I must decrease. But what did John do? He didn't do anything. He sat there and kept on preaching. What did Jesus do? He quietly ceased his labors and moved to Galilee. So John said the right thing, but didn't do the right thing. Jesus just did the right thing. And so after reading that, my wife and I, we transferred to another church, and the head elder came, he says, I know why you're leaving. It's because you and the pastor are not, we like what you're doing here, and we're going to fight. And I said, no, no, we must not have fight. You must let us go very quietly. And of course, I was secretly hoping that this young new pastor's ministry would bomb, but God blessed him after we left. And that was very humbling. He had many baptisms the next year, had great success, had no health. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the truth is his evangelism was very effective and the Lord chastened me. And so I've, I've learned first to always get on with a pastor. And uh, if you can get on his side, you can work in that church. Uh, if not, think about going to someplace else. And I, I most recently retired from Dallas, and there are 100 Seventh-day Adventist churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so it's uh, very easy uh, to move around. Uh, the, the third thing is, is that pastors should be seen in every health evangelism program you do. That helps make it evangelistic as well. I give the pastor a 10-minute talk. He's not to touch on any distinctive doctrines. Do not discuss the sanctuary, the state of the dead, or the Sabbath. If it's uh, talk about how God helps smokers quit, talk about how God helps people with appetite control, uh, talk about how to overcome uh, if you're tempted, uh, and just leave it at that. 
I want the public to become comfortable with the pastor so that if somebody says, won't you come to church this weekend, my pastor says, oh, the, the guy who's, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, he's great. And they're much more likely to come if they see the pastor in a health program. So you need to have your pastor there. But as I said, it needs to be focused on the problem addressed, skip the doctrines. And um, then it should also be brief. Uh, your part is the scientific part, it'll be longer. Sometimes it's hard to get pastors to be brief, uh, but I really stress that. The fourth point, educate and mobilize church members to be the interface with the public. Uh, we've already touched on that. They should be the primary interface with the public, not you. And in the programs that I conduct, after about the third session, the small group leaders recognize that my role is not the important role because I'm not friends with the people in their group, but they are. And they can tell me stories about their group members of which I know nothing. They're developing relationships and they're beginning to realize that it's their interface that is important. I may be the purveyor of information, but they are the purveyor of friendship, they are the purveyor of relationship, they are the purveyor of practical godliness with the audience that is coming. And I like a, small, a ratio of one to three. So if you've got a small group, you'd have two leaders and six, and that would uh, uh, keep the church members focused. I like to give them a helper's guide uh, to, uh, for that particular session. Uh, I don't, but uh, I, I'd be glad to share them with you. I'll give you my contact information at the end. Uh, don't allow church members to promote their favorite supplement or recipe. Uh, uh, I have a PhD nutritionist in my con congregation, and uh, we had a couple of church members that brought a couple of dishes to their small groups, and uh, the nutritionist looked at it and said, they shouldn't be eating that. <laughs> you know, That's not really healthful. So yeah, although you want church members to help, you need to draw some limits. And in every church, you have church members that take a variety of supplements that are herbal or one thing or another, whatever the fad is for the, this month or this year, and they'll want to share that. And we tell absolutely not. You know, uh, this program is uh, scientifically sound. You're not going to share. You can share the way you eat, but do not share any products or things like that. Collect church uh, feedback from church members. How is it going in your group? Who's having victories? And I like to have a little afterglow with them. So this would be an ideal small group, two leaders, six members. Number five, lead out in health evangelism activities. Be the health expert. Be scientifically correct. But at the same time, be spiritual. Use Bible texts and uh, use uh, personal testimonies and pray with the audience. And uh, sometimes it's, it's very helpful. One of the illustrations that I use, uh, for instance, uh, when it comes to the amount of effort that you need to make versus the amount of uh, what God's going to do for you, I like to use the illustration of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This was the most, uh, this was the most powerful uh, miracle that Jesus ever performed. Uh, and... Uh, uh, yet, as he stood there, what did he say? He said, roll away the stone. 
And that to me is a little mysterious because if you wanted to make it really dramatic, he could have had an angel roll it away. He could have zapped it with some lightning and it would have really added some drama to it. And then when uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead, how did he come out? He came out all bound up in grave clothes. And Jesus said, go and unwind him and get him, uh, let him free. And so the, the, the point Mrs. White makes in Desire of Ages at this is that in every miracle that God performs, there is a part for you to play. And God will not do what you can do. Now, I think the people that rolled away the stone didn't go home and say, Jesus and I raised Lazarus today. Because they know that rolling away stones has nothing to do with bringing the dead to life. But it was essential because if they had refused, no, no, we're not going to do that. Lazarus wouldn't have been raised. If we don't do our part, God won't do his part. Our part is insignificant and worthless. His part is all powerful and effectual. But if we don't do our part, he doesn't do his part. And so once you explain this uh, to people, they realize that God doesn't do everything for them. I had a lady who who lost 40 pounds uh, as she was in my practice. And uh, with God's help. And she came into the office one day and she said, there's a problem with this. I said, what's the problem? She says, if I don't pray at breakfast, I overeat at breakfast. If I don't pray during the morning, I snack. If I don't pray at noon, I overeat at noon. If I don't pray in the afternoon, I snack. If I don't pray in the evening, I overeat then. Unless I talk to God all the time, this doesn't work. And she was a Baptist, and I could have said, well, you just proved it's not once saved, always saved. (laughs) But, you know, I said, whoa, just a minute. I said, that is really profound because you're wanting long-term weight results, but God wants a long-term relationship. And boy, her eyes flew open, and she said, oh, I will never complain about having to pray again. And, but she learned the importance of a continuing relationship in relationship with, her, uh, relationship with her weight. Stay around during small group time, answer questions, invite people to other programs. Uh, number six on the list of 10 that we're doing is rebuke ignorant and fanatic health reformers in the church. And uh, this is a quote that I just found this week and I was so excited when I found it. It is, uh, you won't recognize the reference, but PH stands for pamphlets. So if you look in the pamphlets, this is in pamphlet 101, and it's page 21, and it's an extended quote, and so I'm going to give you three slides with a quote, uh, but uh, each uh, part makes a significant point. Here, Spirit of Prophecy says, it is time that something was done that novices may not be allowed to take the field and advocate health reform. Their works and words can be spared, for they do more injury than the most wise and intelligent men with the best influence they can exert can counteract. Oh, that's kind of hard, isn't it? So if, and the problem in our society today is that there's a death of expertise. That's the name of a book. You might want to get it and look at it. It was very interesting reading. But the the truth today is uh, somebody who has spent five minutes on the internet will dispute what you say. You might have had 30 years of training, experience, and background, and know perfectly well what needs to be done. But after five minutes on the internet, they'll dispute what you have to say. 
expertise is pretty well dead in our society, but there are church members who will pretend to be health experts. And they, they have had no background in anatomy, physiology, medication, uh, side effects, pathology. And they need to, you, you need to buttonhole them and say, listen, you know, if you want to have your program, do it down the street. But this is a scientific program. It's scientifically sound. And you can't have a part in this. I'm sorry. Okay? Uh, a very important quote. But you ought to rebuke in Christian kindness. Uh, confront people with their errors. Now, this is a continuation of the quote. It is impossible for the best qualified advocates of health reform to fully relieve the minds of the public from the prejudice received through the wrong course of these extremists and to place the great subject of health reform upon the right basis in the community where these men have figured. So what they're really saying is that if, if these people get their voice and they do their thing, you're ruined. Because they can't, uh, they, they don't know who to believe. You're both members of the same church. Is it A, is it B? They need to be quieted up. So once skeptical, they'll always be skeptical. So here's the rest of the quote. And this is the most serious part. It says, the door is also closed in great measure so that unbelievers cannot be reached by the present truth upon the Sabbath and upon the soon coming of our Savior. The most precious truths are cast aside by the people as unworthy of a hearing. These men are referred to as representatives of health reformers and Sabbath keepers in general. A great responsibility rests upon those who have thus proved a stumbling block to unbelievers. So if somebody gets confused about health issues in your health programs, it's, you can't retrace those steps. And when you want to talk to them about the Sabbath and the second coming of Christ, they're not going to pay attention. That is a sobering fact. So although it may be hurtful to shut down a fanatic or someone who's incorrect, you need to do it. And in, in my church where in Crowley, Texas, where I came from, we had just such a practitioner. And uh, although we were on speaking terms, the truth is that person never participated in any health programs that I or any other health professionals in the church conducted. They were just systematically excluded. And uh, I'm sorry, but it needs to be done. Because if you don't, they won't know who to trust and when it comes time to talk about serious doctrinal issues, people are going to put you all in the same basket. And it's not the right thing to do. So a determined mind is very often a lost mind. These are some of the things that they bring up. Actually, on my way here, I took a phone call from Oklahoma uh, from the daughter of a dear friend. And we had a discussion of essential oils and the herbal supplements and the panic attacks that she was having. Uh, and uh, these were items that she got from her church. Uh, but then there's reflexology. In the Northwest, several years ago, there was a pastor and his wife who conducted craniosacral therapy in the church. And uh, they had to be stopped. If you want a primer on all of these spiritualistic deceptions, there's a really good book by Edwin A. Noyes, who's an Adventist. Uh, Yeah. They got a free copy of that. Excellent. Spiritualistic Deceptions in Health and Healing. Excellent book. Catalogs 
many of these deceptive practices. And uh, here's cranial sac sacral therapy, uh, reflexology, uh, crystal therapy, aromatherapy. Uh, then I think it's good to interface health with evangelism. When your pastor does have an evangelistic series, uh, be there, attend the meetings, insert a health segment there, promote your health programs during the evangelistic programs. Uh, support the evangelistic meetings. Number eight, create an interface with the community from your church. Now this is a little different. Uh, I think the church ought to join the Chamber of Commerce and uh, my wife, our, our church did, and my wife and I did personally as health professionals. We attended the meetings, uh, we had meet and greets actually at the church, and people got to know, uh, got to know us through that avenue. I, was, I joined the American Cancer Society in Fort Worth on their Help Smokers Quit Committee, and then I got on their board of directors, and then I was, uh, after three years, I became president of the American Cancer Society for the city of Fort Worth. Attended their state meetings in Austin and the like, and um, it, it was uh, important for me to do that, and it was important for the church. It was important for Christianity. In fact, a very interesting thing occurred. Jim Morgan, who was one of the program directors for the Cancer Society in the state of Texas, we were riding to the airport together one day, and he said, uh, I, he says, I, you've really helped us with smoking a great deal. What do you think we should get into next? And I said, nutrition, because nutrition has a strong link with cancer. And so he said, well, give a presentation at our uh, board meeting. So I gave the state people a presentation on nutrition, and their answer was, too controversial, we can't go there. Two years later, from the national office, big push, nutrition and cancer. And, and they have been in that basket uh, ever since. We've always interfaced with the Heart Association, Lung Association, they have good literature. I've never been a member, uh, except speaking appointments in the public. Uh, I was just telling somebody, I was kind of hesitating to speak at the same time Mark Finley speaking because he's, he's right next door. And uh, uh, we have a lot in, in common, but he's a much bigger draw than I am. Uh, I had the misfortune one year, I was, I was speaking to the Canadian Automobile Dealers Association uh, in Ottawa, and there were probably 2,000 automobile dealers. I was talking to them about stress. Unfortunately, my speech followed that of Tony Campolo, uh, and uh, who's a very dynamic speaker, and, uh, and uh, it went over kind of like a lead balloon. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think that when you have a chance to speak uh, to the public, you should do so, and do so as a Seventh-day Adventist, as a scientist, as a Christian. Uh, support the health department and its activities as well. Um, so these are associations you can join. Number nine, uh, document and evaluate. Uh, this, uh, this is really important, and I'll uh, track physical variables. We're good at doing that. You measure blood pressure before and after, weight before and after, behaviors before and after, um, but track spiritual variables. This is something we're not good at doing, and you have to have a progress card or a questionnaire that you apply frequently to find out, and you, you need to find out what their spiritual practices are before your program, find out what their spiritual practices are after your program. So you can see what kind of progress is being made in Bible study, what progress is being made in prayer, what progress is being made 
in uh, these various areas. Track church variables. Are people attending evangelistic meetings? Are they taking Bible studies? Are they being baptized? Are they taking an active life in the church? Create a database and then analyze these changes. And I think this is an important variable. The NAVP, which is the non-Adventist person visit. And uh, I count non-Adventists every time they come through the door. And the reason this is important is uh, once you add them all up, uh, what's going to happen is uh, pastors will always say, uh, how many baptisms did you have in your program? And my answer is, we had 786 non-Adventist person visits to our church. How many of them did you baptize? My, my role is not baptism. That's his role. My role is to get them there. And how can you prove that you got them there if you don't count them? And we're all familiar with the concept of person years. Well, these are person visits. So if one person comes 10 times, that's 10 person visits. If 10 people come once, that's 10 person visits. So count the NAVP. And uh, that is the proof that what you're doing is effective. Plus the fact that people are praying more, studying their Bible more. Share and publish. So share it with the church, the conference, and church papers. Report to the converse, uh, conference. And for more details, you can read it in my most recent book, which is The Principles and Practice of Health Evangelism. How do you get a hold of that? It's online. So you can either uh, go to Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million and uh, either type in my name, Elvin Adams, MD, or the title of the book, The Principles and Practice of Health Evangelism. I just moved from Texas to North Carolina, and uh, all of the copies of the books that I have are sitting in a Beacon storage van in Dallas. And so that's, uh, and I had hoped to be moved into my new house by now and be able to bring you some, but uh, mine are all locked up. So uh, you're, you're welcome to. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.